Singer-songwriter Leonard Cohen has been called the poet of brokenness, and music critics point directly to this tune titled Anthem, which Brad Wheeler tells us in The Globe and Mail only took its final form after 10 years of struggle. They sang at the break of day. Start again. I heard them say, Don't dwell on what has passed away or what is yet. I think it is one of the best songs I have written, maybe the best, Cohen told Robert Hilburn in 1995. At the same time, Cassie Werber writes in Quartz, ultimately, Cohen stood by the song fiercely. There's not a line in it that I couldn't defend. And that's a word that's key for us today, fiercely. Leonard Cohen stood fiercely behind a song with these lyrics. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Writer Trebby Johnson titles her recent book, Fierce Consciousness, inspired by poet Robinson Jeffers and his image of a falcon. She contends that fierceness in the peregrine sense is what we need in these troubled times. And she will stand by lines like these, fiercely. They seem at first an odd pair, beauty and grief. Not beauty and ugliness, not sorrow and joy, but grief and beauty. Through the jagged cut of grief flows, when I least expect it, the balm of beauty. Seeing and eventually making beauty in sorrow, in damage, in chaos, does not deny the dark reality. Indeed, it may exacerbate it, but it also opens me to compassion, connectedness, courage, and even joy. The shift doesn't happen right away if I try to kick the grief aside and rush the doors of beauty prematurely. I just slam painfully against the stubbornly closed door. It's essential to sink first into the depths of that sorrow, to let the heart crack open. I sink until I believe I can sink no lower. But if I can stay there in that place, in that moment, for just a little longer than I want, but probably for much less time than I feared I must, it is entirely likely that I will be penetrated by beauty. I can fight it, I can question whether it's appropriate, or I can follow the wisp of longing that tells me to linger with it. Words of Trebby Johnson from her book, Radical Joy for Hard Times. Trebby Johnson is a writer and frequent speaker on the relationship between humans and nature. 
She's won the John Macefield Award from the Poetry Society of America and a Telly Award for the video she produced for the UN on the 20th anniversary of Earth Day. In 2009, she founded the nonprofit organization Radical Joy for Hard Times, and she lived here in Susquehanna County for nearly 20 years. Trevi Johnson stopped in at the WVIA studios as part of her cross-country tour to introduce her newest book, as we heard, titled Fierce Consciousness, Surviving the Sorrows of Earth and Self, issued by Calliope Books. And we began our conversation with her early years. I'd love to know about little Trebby and your interest in the natural world. Were you poking around in leaf mold and on the edges of ponds? How was it? Well, actually, I regard my backyard as a refuge, a lifesaver, a teacher. Because I grew up, my father was an alcoholic. And when he was drunk, he would, be, he would belittle my mother and then he would start hitting her. And I was the kid who would get up in the middle of the night, go downstairs and try and stop it. And so I felt like I was older than my mother in a lot of ways, older than my little brother. Like I was in charge of knowing the reality of life. And yet when I went into my backyard, I saw how everything fit in nature. You know, there's death, there's life, there's blooming, there's budding, there's fighting, there's eating, you know, there's nesting, there's little birds flying, falling out of the nest, there's a puddle, you know, and, and I just got that nature was always telling the truth. And I, it, the message to me was carrying in my heart the fear and the sadness about my family and the vibrancy of the natural world. I was like, I can hold both of these things at once. I can hold the sadness and I can hold the beauty. I can hold the fear and I can hold the life. And it's just been with me my whole life. We were talking about crumbs and we know they take that from the story of Hansel and Gretel and those tales. Did you have an active imagination in terms of stories and reading? Was that also part of I did. Of I started writing when I was really young. I always knew I wanted to be a writer. I remember in the third grade, we had to make a collage of what we wanted to be when we grew up and mine had books and pens and papers. So it's, it's been, an, it's been, I've been doing it a long time. How about your visual sense then? Because you're so keen in the backyard and you're noticing things, did you also do paintings and drawing and things yeah. like that? Yeah, and I used to illustrate my little books. And as a matter of fact, it's a really interesting point because I really love the combination of imagery and writing. And for 25 years, I lived in New York City and I worked on doing multimedia shows which would do lots and lots of slides, music, and narration. And what was fascinating about it was that the writing was not illustrating, was not, it was not explaining the slides. It was like they were interwoven. So each one kind of enhanced the other. And I, I actually edited the yearbook when I was in college, which I loved doing for that same reason. So I love the combination of imagery and, and words. How about formal school? Well, I went to yeah, I went to college. I went to Stevens College in Columbia, Missouri, and it was a wonderful place in the late '60s and early '70s because you didn't have to have a major. You didn't have to have a certain number of classes. So I ended up graduating third in my class after four years with something like 120 hours of literature and a bunch of art history, a bunch of philosophy, and almost nothing else. 
and it was okay, you know. So I had an advisor who was kept kept on wanting me to take other kinds of things, but and then I wasn't interested in it. And so that's also something that you draw upon in your writings, in the books that we've talked about before. You are conversant with poetry and Camus and those things that come in naturally as you're making your points. Yeah, and I, another reason I was grateful for having a college education like that is that I have developed an interest in so many different things since I graduated you know, like I'll get into reading about particle physics or reading about astronomy or, or reading about the reconciliation work in South Africa. You know, those kinds of things, which I might not have done if they'd been forced on me. When you have been here in the past, we've talked with you about your actually going out and exploring and doing vision quests uh-huh. and not just your backyard. You've made paths into wilderness areas. How did that become part of who you were and what you were exploring? Well, I had read about, I took an anthropology course when I was in college, and they talked about, it was Ruth Benedict's Patterns of Culture, which by then was about, oh my goodness, it was probably 30 years old then. And she wrote wrote about Plains tribes, like the Lakota, going out and fasting for several days and calling for a vision. But she made it sound as that not even Native people did it anymore. And then when I was in my 30s, I met a man who did these wilderness rites of passage with other three other white non-Native guides. And they didn't borrow Native traditions at all. It was just about listening to the natural world and being honest about who you are and what, you, what needed to change and where you wanted to go. And I was really intrigued with it. So I trained with some teachers and learned all kinds of other stuff and ended up guiding. Well, I guided here in the Endless Mountains for 17 years. And then in Utah, even in the Sahara Desert in southern Algeria for several years. Each person with you on those adventures asks a question or asks questions and comes back. It's unique to the person, right? It's just amazing. Like people would come and they'd think they were going to do one thing. But then we would have several days of preparation before the group would go out. And they would get clearer about what they really needed to let go of. And sometimes it was things like, I need to stop thinking that I'm smaller than anybody else. Or I need to come out of the closet, admit that I'm in love with a woman and not my husband. And, uh, or I need to admit that I really can quit my job and be a massage therapist. You know, things like that. They were really specific. And then people would go out and they do ceremony and they listen to the earth and, and they'd come back just like, being more accepting of who they truly were and loving themselves in a way that they never had before. How do you talk about it? Does nature cooperate in that actively in that process? It does, absolutely. Because we say you can listen to the natural world and the natural world will speak back. And it's important to not say, oh, I made that up. And you're fasting. When you're on one of these trips, you're fasting. You don't have your, your phones. You don't have a book. You don't have company. And actually, I have been very privileged. I don't lead many of these trips anymore. But for the last three years, I've been leading one for veterans, military veterans, in the Cascade Mountains in Washington. And these are people who, most of them went into the military because they had crummy lives at home. You know, abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, poverty. And they went into the military to find a, a way of creating order and meaning in life, but then they get out and they're just traumatized. And so some people 
some veterans created a rites of passage, a wilderness rites of passage for veterans. And I've been leading one of those for the last three years. And I just love it because people are so ready to change. Like they're they, like on the threshold, they just want to face what's wrong and get better and, and give it to others. They really want to give back to the community. And what is so important about the work that you do is that you embrace the fear, you embrace the suffering. It's not like rose-colored glasses. We're going out into the wilderness and get an animal spirit and we'll be okay, right? No, not at all. That And that's a huge part of all my work. I mean, we were talking about earlier about my work and my work, and it really stems from that realization in my backyard. Like, we have to acknowledge what's wrong and not tell ourselves that it's okay. We have to say, this is what's wrong. I'm frightened. I'm I'm sad. I don't want it to be true. But I have to look at it because nothing's possible until I acknowledge that it's true. So if the natural world is cooperating with us in this questing that we're engaged in, does that mean there's an in-between space? People sometimes talk about a between. It's not nature over there and we're over here. Well, see, the, the focus of the new book, Fierce Consciousness, is about how do we live in the moment, about how do we change things in our contemporary lives in times of hardship. And they're really simple. They're very, very simple actions, 35 of them. And they don't cost any money. You don't have to get an education. You don't have to gather people together. You don't have to go anywhere. And a lot of them have to do with simply being in the moment and seeing what's there and saying, what is beyond this moment that I don't know? And I think that's, that's a thing that happens with the natural world. And you don't have to go on a four-day fast to find that. Like so for me, if I sit in one place outside for even just as little as maybe 10 minutes, and then I think that that liminal in-between space that you're talking about starts to happen where I become a little less chattery in the head and the, the space starts coming forward and I start going into the space, I start noticing things. I notice the way the lights on the trees. I notice the shadows of the the creek on the rock, and it it's it's like little details about how that place lives start to emerge. You have an epigraph in the new book, a verse from Robinson Jeffers' poem. The phrase "fierce consciousness" uh -huh. is in that. What struck you to say, "Yes, that's it"? Well, I love that poem. I I came across that poem oh, probably thirty years ago. And it's a short poem, and the poet sees a peregrine falcon perched on a rock on a very windy seacoast. And he compares the, the kind of the energetic being of the falcon and the rock. And so this is what he says about it. He says, bright power, dark peace, fierce consciousness joined with final disinterestedness, life with calm death, the falcon's realist eye and act married to the massive mysticism of stone that failure cannot cast down nor success make proud. And I just love that idea of fierce consciousness. And to tell the truth, I wanted to name a book Fierce Consciousness for years, and this was the right one. <laughs> and what I mean by fierce consciousness is, and I describe it a little bit in the, the prologue of the book, is a willingness, like I said earlier, it's a willingness to look at what's wrong and to say, I get it, I, I accept what's happening, and it doesn't conquer me. I move through, I know what I have to do next. And the, the doing what's next isn't necessarily some big action. And that's what this book is not about taking big actions, it's little actions. It's little things 
like changing our perception, doing one small thing in the moment when it feels like you can't do anything in the moment, and being open to beauty, and then creating beauty, creating meaning, and punching. I have one whole section called Punch, and it's, it's based on a story that a friend of mine told about her brother who was skiing, and he was caught up in an avalanche, and he thought he was going to die. And he had a moment where he said, well, maybe that's not so bad. You know, I've had a good life. Then the snow stopped, and he realized he wasn't dead yet. And so he kind of loosened his arm, and he punched through the avalanche. He punched through that snow. And to me, it's such a beautiful metaphor of how you accept that this is perhaps the last. This, this is the end. I can't do anything more. And yet you summon up the will to do one thing, one punch, and... It might, save, it might save your life, but it will definitely save the moment. It will save the moment, guaranteed. And you tell us that we should think about the end of the world, but. But not the end of the story, yeah. Yeah, that chapter was inspired by that by um, a man named Robert Lifton. Robert Lifton. And he has written a lot about the survivors of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And he said that the end of the world happened for those two cities when those bombs fell. But it wasn't the end of the story because then people who had survived had to figure out a way how to live. So considering the end of the world, which I think is something we, a lot of people, and especially young people, are asking themselves about climate change. Like, is the world as we have known it is ending, and yet, how am I going to behave? How am I going to be the person who can help my friends, who can who can find a way to live, who can grow my own vegetables, who cannot sink into despair. And you are very strong in making sure we understand the need to grieve. In our small losses during the days or big losses, we have a tendency to protect ourselves from pain, right? We do. And this book, as you know, it started out to be about climate change. And then the pandemic happened. And I realized that everything I was doing fit into that kind of an emergency. And then my husband died. And I realized that it all fit into dealing with a great personal anguish. I mean, it really was anguish for me. And, uh, and the story that I tell in the very beginning, which I'd like to just say now, is after my husband died, he died in a hospice just near Scranton. And I called his three grown children. I called some of our friends. I packed up our stuff. I went outside. It was August. And I could hear Katie did singing in the trees all around this hospice building. Just, just 360 degrees of song. And I just put the bags down on the sidewalk. And it was, I felt like my life is just taken the worst possible turn it could possibly take. And yet these insects have to sing. That's their job. They have to sing. And they were singing, and it didn't make my sorrow go away, but it was like it affirmed for me the, the persistence of life. And I, and I bowed to the katydids. Like I just put my hands together and I bowed, and then I picked up my bags and put them in the car. And, and the, the message of this book is that even in the harder, even in the really, really hard times, if we're open to it, we can find and receive and give beauty, meaning, life, transcendence, appreciation of others. And you have, throughout your life, since we've known you and talked with you, radical joy for hard times. You have encouraged people and built a network of people around the world who have 
with you and others found broken places in the world, whether they be toxic places or places that have been exploited for various reasons. Mm -hmm. And you have talked us through, what if we went and arranged some twigs in a lovely pattern there? Talk to us about that work and what that means for people. Yeah, Radical Joy for Hard Times. And it's a nonprofit organization. And um, and we have an event every year in June called the Global Earth Exchange. And uh, people all over the world, and there aren't thousands of them, but maybe hundreds, they go to a place that is meaningful to them that's been hurt. And it might be a tree in somebody's backyard that's infested by insects. Or there was a man in Japan once who did it for the school children who had been killed in the tsunami in 2011. This is huge range. We've had scientists in Antarctica doing something on behalf of a glacier that's melting. And people go to these places, and we really recommend going in person and sharing the stories about what the place means to them, and then taking time to get to know it a little bit as it is now, because we have all these projections about what it's going to be like and how we're going to feel about it. And then, as you say, making this gift for the place out of stuff that the place itself offers. And shortly before I moved, after, after my husband died, I moved. I left this area and I moved to Ithaca, New York. But I was going on walks in an old coal area in Oliphant. And um, I went there several times and just walked around. And there's huge mound of coal waste and there's fires underneath and I talked to people who know about all these things, and they told me about the, the architecture under it. And um, every time I went, I just kind of fell in love with some different aspect of it. Like there was a puddle, and it was autumn, and there were leaves. There were beautiful colored leaves, and the soil was black because of the coal. And there are all these, like, scarlet and golden leaves floating on top of it. It looked like Japanese lacquerware. And... And it's just like you go to these places and you see how nature is trying so hard to come back and, and thrive. And, and it just does. It can't help itself. It can't help itself. The notion of beauty, you mentioned Japanese lacquer. And we know that often in the scrolls of China and the gardens of Japan and the, the wonderful calligraphy and the ceramics and so forth, there is that wonderful notion of beauty, but also the fragility, the passing of the cherry blossoms, so the gather ye rosebuds kind of sentiment. But you also mentioned that beautiful sense that we have of the broken places. You refer to people always know about the Canadian singer-songwriter Leonard Cohen and the places where the broken yes. places where the light goes in. And that yes. sounds like something that absolutely, you, absolutely. So the book, Fierce Consciousness, we don't have to do all 35, but we can pick three that make sense for who we are. Well, the, 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 the way I wrote the book is it's got th these 35 chapters divided into five sections, but it's not like you, you do all of, all of them in a particular order. And I am imagining people, they might read it all the way through. That would be nice. But they also could just go back, open it at random, and see what's there. And they're not, they're kind of interesting, fun smart-ass suggestions. <laughs> They're not things like, oh, you should improve your diet. You should get a hobby. You know, you should get out more. There are things like, I have one called, claim your superpower, punch through the avalanche, fight the angel and let her win, get dirty, go home. You know, and, and they're just simple ways of looking and perceiving and behaving in a slightly different way that doesn't take anything except being open to it. 
And if we are open to it, and this has been what I've realized my whole life and why I was able to hear those Katie dids, if we're open to the magic of the world, it just wants to come in. It's like that light in the crack. Like if you're, if, if you're refusing to look at that crack in the vessel and just looking at the side that's whole, you're not going to see that light pouring in. But if you turn around and you face the light, it pours in and facing that crack in the vessel. <laughs> and you wrote these chapters in a, a burst of inspiration or you made little notes from time to time. We can really see that it's a distillation of the wisdom that you've come to. It is. Yeah, it is. And I, it's funny, I didn't even realize that until it was finished and I was reading the proofs. I went, oh my goodness, this is how I've been living for the last 75 years. <laughs> I'm 75 now. But this is the way I wanted to write this book. I wanted to write it in those little short chapters like that. So I just started putting down ideas. And of course they changed, you know, they've got refined and some got tossed out. It's not just having wisdom. It's having wisdom in a form that people can then ingest or so there aren't too many hoops. Like you're saying, four-day fasts. People do that and it's wonderful for them, but so many people can't. That's absolutely. And it's always been important for me in everything I've written that if I'm going to have an idea, I have to show away how it's practical, how it has feet on the earth. And if it's a story about feet on the earth, there has to be some sort of reason for it. So the, the thinking and the doing have to match up for me because I think that otherwise it, people don't relate to it. It's either too heady or it's not, uh, it's just not, it doesn't make any sense. It's like, so what? Why this and not something else? Even before your first visit to WVIA, Trevi, I remember reading your essays in the journal Parabola that described itself in those years as a magazine of myth and the quest for meaning. I've been writing for Parabola for almost 40 years. Your tenure there almost answers the question I'm about to ask. What about that way then of understanding the world through myth and our stories that we have told from whatever tradition? Oh, yeah, I think it's so important. And it's so relevant because the reason myths survive, of course, is because they tell stories that are somehow still relevant to us. And and that's what I love about studying myth. Like you, you read about somebody who act some certain way because of jealousy. And that's the message. Like, this is what happens if you, if you react in an impulsive way when you're jealous of somebody. Or then I have a story in the new book that a, a friend of mine who's Oneida told me about a turtle who gets jealous of the birds because they're flying south to a nice warm place for the winter. And the turtle begs to be taken along. And uh, the birds finally give in because the turtle's making a pest of himself. And they say, okay, you hold on to this stick and we'll carry the stick in our beaks and you hold on with your mouth. And they're flying over the land and the turtle gets impatient and wants to know if we're almost there and, of course, falls down to earth. <laughs> so that's the story. You know, grandparents would tell little children about that. Like, you can't, you can't be impatient. And these little stories remain true for us. And I, I love the Greek myths. Sisyphus, you have that? Sisyphus, I love Sisyphus. Yeah, Sisyphus is a favorite. I start out this book with Sisyphus. You are Sisyphus and so am I. You know, you're carrying a rock up a mountain and sometimes you feel like, why bother? It's not going to stay there anyway. I'm just going to have to do it all over again. So that's how it starts out. And then the very last chapter is, it's taken from a quote by Camus, imagine Sisyphus happy. That's how, that's how Camus' essay about Sisyphus ends. So that's the title of the last chapter in the book. We sit back up when we hear that phrase, don't we? Sisyphus happy? Yeah, and the reason Sisyphus is happy, even though Sisyphus, of course, Sisyphus 
is punished by Zeus because Sisyphus told a tale about Zeus having abducted a young woman. So he has to roll a rock up a mountain only to reach it. It gets to the peak and then it rolls back down again. He has to go back. So Camus says he's happy because he knows that this is his life's work. He doesn't ask for the gods to change their mind. He doesn't complain. He just does it. He puts his whole weight behind that rock and he pushes it up that hill. And then I love this Camus. I read this when I was in college, this, this essay by Camus, the, the Myth of Sisyphus. He ends, one must imagine Sisyphus happy. It's wonderful. And you say, sing through despair? Yes, sing through the darkest night was a chapter. How can we do that when we don't even have the energy to lift our heads? Yeah, that, well, that was an amazing, that story had to do with South African political prisoners. And there are several stories about they would be taken from their cells into a particular area of the prison called the pot, you know, like a cooking pot. And once you were in the pot, you were going to be executed within a a week. And these are people who had done nothing except trying to get freedom for black South Africans in their own country. And these stories were that on the night before somebody was to be executed, they would all start singing. They would sing and they would sing about, they would just sing songs. They would sing about life. I mean, can you imagine you're about to be executed and people sing? And I just feel like it's, it's not always about vocal singing, but it's about finding something to do that is, that is creative, that is a way of putting energy and life and creativity. I mean, cooking or playing with your children or making a garden. You know, you don't have to write or paint or be a pianist doing something that is about, that is life affirming and that is, it's, it's not necessarily going to cure the unhappiness, but it's going to affirm life. It's going to get you to the next step. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Writer and speaker Trebby Johnson, who is concerned deeply about the relationship between humans and nature. She has issued a number of books, including Radical Joy for Hard Times, and that's the title of the organization she has founded, a nonprofit. She has lived in Susquehanna County in Thompson for nearly 20 years, and she recently relocated to Ithaca. She stopped in at the WVIA studios as part of her cross-country tour to introduce her newest book, and that is titled Fierce Consciousness, Surviving the Sorrows of Earth and Self, issued by Calliope Books. For more information on the web, trebbyjohnson.com, and Trebby is spelled T-R-E-B-B-E, Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-O-N, trebbyjohnson.com. Fierce Consciousness, Surviving the Sorrows of Earth and Self by Trebby Johnson, released by Calliope Books. For more information, on the web, trebbyjohnson.com, trebbyjohnson.com. Maybe there's a God above, as for me all I ever seem to learn from love is how.